Protect this house. Y'all know that advertising campaign? It's my favorite Under Armour commercial, Protect This House. And the reason why I love that commercial is because it's all about a home team defending its turf. Uh, it's, this, it's this anthem, this song about the training and the intensity and the bond that goes into preparing for game day. Protect this house. Maybe uh, that fires you up. Maybe it pumps you up when you see that commercial. It certainly does me. And I think it does because defending what belongs to us, protecting that which has been entrusted to us is, uh, is a passionate endeavor. Um, and it's not only for us. It was the same way for Jesus. And in our gospel reading this morning, what we hear is Jesus protecting his house. His passion and his power is very real. And it makes us uncomfortable. Open your Bibles to John chapter 2. In your blue Bibles, that's on page 887. I'm really looking forward to our new lighting Y'all continue to pray for that. I can't barely see up here, so keep praying for our new lighting. I know. Hopefully it's coming. Um, John chapter 2 in your blue Bibles, it's on page 887. So let's pick up in the story where we left off last week under a tent. We'll pick it up this week. Jesus leaves Cana and proceeds to Jerusalem. You know why he's going to Jerusalem, the capital city? Why is he going? Yeah, he's going to celebrate the Passover, right? You remember uh, the purpose of the Passover feast? It goes back to uh, God's time with his people uh, who have been um, enslaved in Egypt. And God desires that his people worship him, but they can't worship him because they're slaves. And so God raises up Moses to confront Pharaoh. And if you're interested in looking at this later in Exodus chapter 8, We read this, then the Lord says to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. So that they may worship me. God's passion and power is real here. Um, He set his people free. He shows them how to worship him in the desert. He gives them the promised holy land and he inspires them to build a temple so that they can keep on worshiping him because God loves it when people live into their created identity and worship him above all else. And that's really the context and the backdrop to Jesus being in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover feast. He's thinking about celebrating God's goodness and faithfulness. He wants to worship. So where does he go? Yeah. I mean, if you're a Jew and you want to celebrate the Passover feast and you want to worship, you go to the place that God has provided for worship to occur. The temple, his house, the house of the Lord. But what we hear is that what Jesus finds in the temple breaks his heart. You kind of imagine this in your mind's eye. Uh, Worshippers at this time in God's relationship with his people need 
oxen and sheep and dove and incense and wine and oil and salt and other items for their sacrifices and offerings. And pilgrims from foreign nations need their money exchanged so that they can buy these items and worship God. Can you kind of see that in your mind's eye? And at some point in the history of the temple, the priest decide to take advantage of this market. The priests set up booths to make a profit. And they also lease space to outside retailers who often turn out to be their family members to make profit as well. And so what results is this atmosphere of commerce and commotion. And God's house became a place of business and selfish ambition rather than a place of worship and prayer. Can you imagine? Can you kind of see that? And when Jesus sees this, it breaks his heart. He becomes justifiably angry. Can you imagine coming home and finding your house has been broken into and ransacked and turned upside down? It's happened twice in my neighborhood this last week. Uh, once uh, someone came through the alley, broke the lock on a back house and, and broke in. And then a couple of days ago, um, in the middle of the afternoon, someone kicked down a front door. There was no alarm on that house and they just turned it over upside down and stole a bunch of stuff. I actually know that person. I mean, how, would, how would you feel if that happened to you? I mean, maybe, maybe you have, maybe you've been broken into. How does, how does that feel? I know I'd feel really violated I'd become justifiably angry. And if I walked in on him, I guarantee you I would do everything that I could possibly do within my power to get them out of my house. And this is what Jesus does. Look at John 15 through 17. The cleansing of the temple is really unimpressive, a dramatic statement of Jesus' passion to protect his house. He does four significant things to demonstrate that he's the master of this house. Four things to drive out everything that does not belong in God's house. The first thing is what? He makes a whip. Okay, Jesus. Now, think about this, right? Um, Jesus doesn't just go and makes a whip. It takes some time to make a whip. The emphasis here is that Jesus sits down and is deliberately going through the process of making a whip. Right? So maybe there's silence. Maybe there's curiosity. Maybe he's doing some teaching as he's making this whip. But he makes a whip and it has three cords. This is not a sissy nanny whip. And anybody in Jesus' day would have known that this is an ancient symbol of his right to enforce obedience. Imagine the awe that came over this scene when people were watching Jesus do this. This is the Messiah King who is about to passionately confront Israel's sin and authoritatively call them to renew their worship and their relationship with the living God. He makes a whip 
And then he does something else. He chases out everybody that was buying and selling. Okay, so again, picture this. Now we got Jesus with a whip. And instead of singing and prayer in his house, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, there's bartering and haggling. Instead of adoration and petition, there's consumerism and greed. And Jesus takes his whip and he starts as a good shepherd running out the wolves. And as he's doing that, he turns over the tables of the money changers and he tosses the chair, Coach McKnight style. He tosses the chair of the dove dealers. Now, honestly, how does this make you feel? I mean, on the one hand, we get pumped up because we love a story when the good guy goes nuts and kicks out the bad guys, right? So we're like, yeah, Jesus. But on the other hand, like this is Jesus. (laughs) And it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable because it's not the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, meek and mild mama's boy Jesus. This is the steely-eyed, holy, righteous Jesus, Messiah, King, zealous for his Father's house to be honored as a place of worship and prayer. So gentle Jesus, meek and mild, might be an accurate portrayal of his infancy in a stable, but it's inaccurate of his character and nature in the scene. Jesus is a fierce warrior, consumed with fiery zeal to protect and defend and honor the house of God. As much as this makes us uncomfortable, it also resonates with our soul because we know that the Jesus of the Scripture is often so much more full and so much more real than the Jesus we typically think about in our mind's eye. And and what we see here is a powerful and passionate portrait of the gospel. John is including this scene and his testimony so that we might understand something extremely significant. This is the gospel. God is holy and he creates us to honor him and he delights it, delights when we enjoy him by worshiping him above all else. And yet We know that our hearts are corrupt and we rebel against God and we seek our own glory and we honor ourselves and we worship the false gods of materialism and success and self-image instead of our creator. We, We do this in the church. How often have I shown up to check a box rather than come with a humble heart eager to meet with the living God? How often have I made decisions to make people happy rather than to honor and glorify the Lord? How often have I participated in ministry to get something out of it and to feel good about myself rather than to help others meet Jesus and grow in their relationship with him? How often I get consumed with liturgy and and vestments and tradition or 
smoke machines and shiplap and lights rather than humbling myself in joyful reverence in the presence of a loving, majestic God. Jesus reminds me, Jesus reminds us that worship that is self-centered and superficial and unaligned with him will receive his censure. When we take the things God intended to glorify him and, and use them to honor and serve ourselves, it makes God justifiably angry. That's what's going on here. And the reason that this passage makes us uncomfortable is because we not only do this in the church, we do this in our hearts. I mean, how often have I taken advantage of people and circumstances to serve myself rather than to bless? How often have I attempted to control outcomes rather than to surrender to the Lord and trust him in his way? How often have I hoarded money to promote my self-image rather than give generously and from the heart to advance the gospel or to care for the needs of God's family? How often have I sought to find my identity at work rather than in who God created and redeemed me to be? I mean, my heart is a mess. How, how often do I defile sex and God's design for it and condemn those with opposing views as me as if they were inhuman? And feel smug when I'm right and others are wrong. Like, I'm a mess. And Jesus reminds me and he reminds us that all of these ugly, disordered affections corrupt and defile our hearts. Which are the temple of the Lord. God's anger against my sin makes me uncomfortable. God's anger against our sin makes us uncomfortable because we want to be right and we don't like it when God tells us that we're wrong. We want to be great and we don't like it when God tells us that our behavior is unacceptable. And sure, we can, we can go Genesis 3. You know, we can run, but God loves us and he's going to pursue us. We can deny our pride or our selfishness, our greed, our gluttony, our lust, but God loves us. And he's going to pursue us with his truth and grace and keep on searing our conscience until we wake up and pay attention to his presence. Yeah, we can shift the blame, but God loves us. And he holds us personally accountable to come face to face with him and deal with what separates us from him and his purposes and designs for us. And this is what Jesus is doing in the temple. And it's what he's doing in my heart and in your heart every single day. He's pursuing us. He's confronting us. And he's calling us to turn away from ourselves and the things that we're worshiping that are not God. And to turn to him and worship him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why? Because he loves us. And he wants us to live into and experience the redemption of what it means to be fully human and fully alive. Jesus protects our hearts because our hearts are his home. 
This is what it looks like to have Jesus in our lives. To be on Jesus' team. To know his power and his passion. And how fired up and vigilant he gets about protecting this house. About protecting this house. He's a warrior. He's very serious about this. Look at, look at verses 18 through 20. It's interesting how we can respond. Religious folk don't like this. In fact, they're, they're actually angry at Jesus. They're incensed by his audacity. And it's amazing to me, even though it shouldn't be because I'm the same way, rather than to align to him and ask him some questions, what do they do? They start refusing him and questioning his authority. What right does he have to do that? He's claiming the temple belongs to his father. That's a claim to be the Messiah. That's blasphemy. And so they, they approach him and they, they're, I mean, they're kind of passive aggressive about it. They're fairly subtle, but they're attacking his character. They want him to prove it. They want him to perform a miraculous sign. Okay, Jesus, if you're all that, come on, show us. And, you know, like Jesus could have gotten all up in their grill at this point, right? I mean, this could have just gone really poorly. And, and this is where we see the mercy and the gentleness of Jesus. He, he replies, destroy this temple and three days I will raise it up. It's a beautiful double entendre, right? There's a hidden second meaning here. And everybody misses it. And all the religious folk get really mad. Who do you think you are? What credentials do you have to justify your actions here? It took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to rebuild it in three days? Ha! Ha! You're nuts. You get out of here. Like this one's uncomfortably close to me, y'all. And it provides um, our first journal exercise this week. In what ways is the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin in your life? And how are you responding? Because there's only two responses. You can be religious and refuse Jesus and reject the Holy Spirit. Or you can humbly welcome Jesus and invite him to cleanse your heart and reorient you to right worship. How are you responding? How is the Holy Spirit moving in your heart heart this week. We'll look at John uh, 2, 21 through 22. Um, because things begin to come together and make sense here in this gospel portrait. How? Because Jesus is talking about himself. He's, he's talking, when he, when he says, 
destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He's talking about himself, not the building. Okay, so try and fathom what's going on here. In the temple, during the Passover feast, Jesus is claiming to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and fulfills the very feast that they are celebrating in the place that they've come to celebrate. And the proof that he has the authority over God's house and to cleanse God's house and to reorient worship around himself will be in his death and resurrection. That's going to be the miraculous sign. It's how he's going to prove that he's the Messiah. And what that means is that Jesus comes to renew and reorient worship, not in a place, but in his person. Jesus' death and resurrection will provide a new temple, a new meeting place for God and man. And that new meeting place is Jesus. Jesus is the place where we come to worship and receive forgiveness and enjoy reconciliation with God. And what's really cool here, which I think, again, is some grace and mercy, is that the disciples don't even get it at this point. But it says that they finally realize what Jesus is talking about after his death and resurrection. I think this is a a great opportunity for a second journal exercise. How are you inviting Jesus to clean up the mess in your heart? And what do you need him to do specifically to reorient your heart and your life to authentic worship? Like today, this week, what does that look like? That's what he's come to do. He's come because he loves us. He confronts us with truth because he loves us. But then he is the grace to clean us up and to give us the ability, the desire, and the power to worship him above all else. That is Christ in us. And the hope that we have. And therefore, outside of Christ, there is no forgiveness. And there is no way to fully worship God in spirit and in truth. But in Christ, we have been redeemed and restored to the very purposes that God created us for in the first place. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you this morning through the bread and the wine, we ask that your spirit would move powerfully and passionately in our hearts. Lord, we invite you to confront our false worship and thank you that you love us enough to forgive us of our false worship. Thank you that you love us enough to purify our hearts from all of our selfish ambition and greed. 
Thank you that you love us enough to fill us with your spirit and restore our desire and renew our commitment to live no longer for ourselves, but for you who has come and died and been raised for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us again and again and again so that we might always stand holy and blameless and without blemish in the presence of the Lord. So as we come to you, Lord, let it be. And in your mercy and grace, help us to see not only who you are, but who we are together in you. For your glory and for our freedom and joy, we pray. Amen.